Welcome to Invest the Money, a production of Foster & Associates Financial Services, Inc., brought to you by your hosts, Philip Marion and David Winnell. Invest the Money is a podcast where, with the help of our guests, we explore investment options outside the traditional stocks, bonds, and ETFs that make up the core of most portfolios. Disclaimer, none of our discussions should be considered a recommendation to purchase any particular product, security, fund, or ETF and all content should be considered for information purposes only. Before making any investment decision, our listeners are strongly encouraged to seek the counsel of a qualified investment advisor to make sure the investment is suitable for you. Now on to the show. It is a new year and a new season of Invest the Money. We hope 2021 is off to a great start for all of our listeners. And to kick off the season, we are going to interview Cameron Stevens, Mortgage Capital. Now, we know it is something focused in the REIT space, uh, commercial lending, construction financing, land financing. Uh, Should we be looking at this? Well, we think that it is interesting to look at this particular firm and uh, a couple of reasons why. First, this is a new strategy that Cameron Stevens has offered to investors um, in the form of a mortgage trust, which we'll get into, but it gives access to the experience and track record of the group, which they will discuss. And secondly, we feel it's extremely necessary to align yourself with groups that have this experience and have all these relationships that they've built and are able to manage risk appropriately to deliver returns. Uh, Third point is... uh, you know, I feel it would be a good discussion because Steve in particular, who we'll be uh, in, introducing shortly, runs his own podcast and I figure it would be a good discussion nevertheless. So let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome everybody to another episode of Invest the Money. This is the first of 2021. So we are excited to have our guest today from Cameron Stevens Mortgage Capital. We have Katie Bonner, who is Vice President of investment management, and also Steve Cameron, who is executive VP. Welcome, you two. Glad to have you. Thanks for having us. So uh, let's get started. Just why don't you tell us a little bit about Cameron Stevens, uh, a little history as to how you started and how you got to this point. Thanks so, so much for having us. It's, uh, it's nice to be on the other side of, of being on a podcast. Obviously, I've been hosting my own for a year. So to be on the other the recipient end, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. As far as uh, the organization, we've been around for 17 years. Uh, it's actually my father was the, uh, was the founder of the company. He was formerly uh, with a company called MCAP, which is a large residential and commercial lender, sort of through a number of different... Uh, happenings along the way decided that uh, you know he wanted to go out and do his own thing and thought that managing high net worth individuals money and putting it into the real estate development world would be a, a good place for uh, for him to go so he actually had one investor who had 25 million bucks and said go find deals I'll put the money up you originate the deals and underwrite them and we'll start this you know I'll, we'll start a little fund and I think his intention at the time was just to do, just that small deals, predominantly in the beginning behind MCAP deals, because that's where he came from. MCAP would find the, the deal, they'd do what we call the A piece, and he would do what we call the, mes, the B piece or the MES piece. 
and he was doing one or two million dollar deals and investing just this uh, one individual's twenty five million dollars. Fast forward seventeen years to today, that one fund is about almost at three hundred million. Uh, there's five families in the fund. Uh, we manage another three hundred million of other family office. So we, we sort of look at our our investors as a investors or or institutional and private. So we're about six hundred million un, under management on the private side and. Uh, but a billion dollars of institutional money that we manage, which is made up of life companies, trust companies, credit unions, tier two banks, and, and the likes. And, and really what our job is or what we do is we originate commercial financing, predominantly land development construction, and, and we, um, we do the underwriting, the credit adjudication, and the administration and funding and servicing of the loan. You've been, uh, well, from our perspective, there's been access to private real estate through a number of, will be competitors of yours, whether it's a Romspin, et cetera. And you've recently sort of branched out to uh, incorporate the investors of the world on our end. So what kind of things can you tell us about your strategy and your fund that would be different from uh, some of your competitors? Sure. So I can take that one. I would say by and large, one of the things that we're most proud of is our risk adjusted return. We're offering on the Mortgage Trust, which is one of our more recent retail products, uh, a 7 to 9% net return range. And we think that given that the fund has a weighted average loan to value of only 60%, that that's a pretty good risk return trade-off. We also, uh, Cameron Stevens as a whole, has a very strong loan loss track record. Since inception in 2004, our loan losses are only about 11 basis points annualized since inception. So we think, again, that that's very strong and that definitely makes us stand out from the competition. Steve also alluded to a minute ago that we have this $300 million limited partnership, which is called the Bay Street High Yield Fund, comprised of ultra high net worth family offices in the real estate development and property management space in Southern Ontario. One of the reasons that's been such a competitive advantage for us is because on our mortgage trust and our MIC, which are our two accredited retail products, we do offer co-investment with that Bay Street High Yield Fund. And I would say on the mortgage trust, about 85% of the loans are co-invested in equal priority with that fund. So our retail investors take a lot of comfort in knowing that the investors behind the Bay Street Fund have independently reviewed and approved all of those loans, and they're benefiting from their investment committee. So I would say those are the things that make us stand out, as well as our focus on land development and construction. Some of our competitors focus more on the income-producing assets, like retail, commercial, apartment, industrial. And I would say particularly through the pandemic on the retail and office space, we've really had a had a good run on residential and we think residential is very resilient. So that's also been a positive for us. So Katie, just quickly, you mentioned the loan to value. Can you sort of explain what that is for some of our listeners in case they don't know and, and why it's important? Sure. So there's a couple of different ways to calculate it depending on the asset class. But the by and large uh, overall summary of it is that the loan is the mortgage that we're offering. Typically, because we're providing first mortgages, it would just be our mortgage. But if we were in second mortgage position, it would be the sum of the first and second mortgages to calculate the total exposure. And then the value is the as-is value of the property in the event of a land loan or a property that's a you know a fixed asset. And for a construction loan, you're looking at the as-complete value of the project. So for a simple example, if somebody is buying a piece of land for $10 million, we're providing them with a $5 million first mortgage. That's a 50% loan to value or in a construction loan. If we're providing you know, a $20 million construction loan 
and the as complete value of the project is 100 million, then that's a 20% loan to value. So very simple in that regard. I would say it's one of the more important metrics that we use in this space because the loan to value not only is a metric that shows you, you know, how much cushion you have, but it also it also tells you in the event of default how much room you have on price points. So again, just to illustrate that with an example, on land, we typically limit our land lending to 50% loan to value because land tends to be a little bit of a riskier asset class. You know, you don't have anything on the property yet. There's often planning risk or environmental risk. And if we're lending at 50% loan to value, even if market price is correct by 20 or 30%, you still have a fair cushion in there to make sure that you get out and you're made whole. So it's a very important metric in the industry. What differentiates us, if I could pick, a, pick out two things that Katie said, number one, our, our exposure, our loan to value, David, like you you asked about, is extremely low for a fund uh, of our nature. So a lot of mezzanine or private funds are operating from you know what we think is more of a market loan to value, probably over 70%, 75%, in some cases, maybe upwards of 80, 85. And I think our average loan to value, and Katie will correct me, it's 60, 60%. 60%. So for, for a group who's returning seven to nine percent, you know, and, and at that risk level, it's actually it's astonishing, really. Like it, it's very surprising. It is. It's 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 just and it speaks to our loan losses would be the second thing, you know, like our, our loan losses are virtually um non-existent and and anecdotally what we hear on the street, a lot of our competitors operate at a 10, 15, 20 percent of their book and receivership. We we try or we tend to not have that problem, but still are able to, you know, provide the same returns. You mentioned um, the uh, the MIC, and now you've got the mortgage trust set up. For uh, for our listeners who wouldn't know the difference between the two, can you go through what are the parameters for a MIC and how the mortgage trust is different? Sure. So there's two primary differences between the trust and the MIC. So we started our mortgage investment corporate, our MIC, first. Uh, and then about two years ago, we decided we wanted to create a mortgage trust. The legal name of is it actually a mutual fund trust is the legal structure. So we decided at the time we wanted to go forward with that predominantly because the mutual fund trust legal structure permits U.S. investments, whereas the MIC legal structure does not. And I would say it's Cameron Stevens' two to three year growth plan to start making investments in the U.S. and visiting U.S. markets. Obviously, that's a little bit on hold with the COVID pandemic, and we have to wait until we can safely travel and, you know, see what all the outcomes are to the economies. But to be in line with our two to three year growth plan, we thought it was a good idea now to create a vehicle that would set us up for future growth. And another major difference between the MIC and the trust is that MICs all have a stipulation that at least 50% of the assets have to be residential. Uh, generally for us, this is less of an issue because we focus predominantly on residential financing, whether it's land development or construction. But for other lenders that may not be as residential focused, the mutual fund trust structure would give them more investment flexibility. What are you targeting within the portfolio? Uh, is it predominantly land loans? Is it construction financing? Can you give a breakdown of the allocation? Sure. So we're in the mortgage trust right now. We're about 58% in land. Uh, we're about 25% in construction. I would say around 7% in single family residential. And then the balance would be a little bit of everything, a little bit of inventory, a little bit of bridge, uh, a little bit of commercial income producing, probably about 2%. Uh, but generally, our focus, like I said, is residential land and construction. One thing that I will mention is that historically, Cameron Stevens as a whole has done a lot of land financing. We're very good at it. Like I said, we lend at conventional metrics. But to make the mortgage trust, I would say, more appealing to a broader audience, I have worked hard to diversify that fund a little bit away from land. 
So 58% obviously is still a high allocation, but our MIC, for example, is closer to 70%. So I've tried to bring the trust allocation down, bring in some more construction financing, and then actually have some single family residential in there, even though it's not a core business for us, because it does provide diversification in terms of a fixed asset class that's existing and most people are relatively aware of and comfortable with. Is this just adapting to the scenario at this point? You'd probably want to, obviously you mentioned you want to be a bit more in the US, but that's going to be in the future. As a result of, of these delays and dealing with the pandemic, have you had to sort of really think on your toes and look for opportunity? It's a loaded question as far as you know where we'd be in terms of going to the US today versus if the pandemic never happened. I think for us, our, our core business is, um, is downtown Toronto. We're located at the corner of uh, Young and Adelaide. And I'd say 85% of the deals that we have on our books right now, you can drive to within two hours. So that's sort of, you know, we like to always say, you know, real estate's really touch and feel kind of thing. You want to walk it, kick the dirt. So you need to be able to go there. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the, the densest population in Ontario is located within the Golden Horseshoe. So we, we've been we've we've got a great track record here. Our name is you know is uh, it's an established name or it's becoming an established name. We decided to go out west, and we picked Calgary. And we picked Calgary probably six months before oil prices dropped from 120 bucks a barrel to 30 bucks a barrel. So the timing couldn't have been worse. And they've essentially been in a recession or at least struggling to get out of somewhat of whatever you want to call it a depression ever since. You know, Biden being elected, the Keystone Pipeline is not going to help uh, them at all. And uh, we, but I, but I guess you know, we still were focused on building offices across Canada because we we felt you know if we wanted to go to the U.S., we needed to have satellite satellite offices in our own country first. So we pivoted to Vancouver. We have um, you know we have a strategy to grow that office. You know, I, I think the goal would be for us to have this two to three offices set up in. Canada, and then, you know, pick two or three cities in the U.S. But like Katie said, I mean, no one's traveling, no one's meeting. It's, it's very difficult to, you know, we, actually, Katie and I went to um, Atlanta and we went to New York and we went to, was there anywhere else we went, Katie? Those were the Last, two main ones, but uh, we had some more we were hoping to do in 2020, but obviously those are on hold. So we'll we'll see where, where the next nine or 12 months take us. But we'd certainly like to get back into that, pursuing that strategy sooner than later. Yeah, we were doing some research and, and have, we set up meetings in, in a few markets and the plan for 2020 was to do a lot more of that. But yeah, here we are. You, you might have just answered my, my next question. I'm kind of curious if in the States you'd be targeting like the, the big cities like a New York or a Chicago or an L.A. or sort of the secondary urban centers larger than, than Toronto and the GTA in a lot of cases. Where, where would you be looking? I would say... One of the reasons we liked Atlanta was that, A, it's a very high growth market, you know, a lot of education there, a young population, still quite affordable, especially when you compare it to Toronto, that you can buy, you know, a single family house in the suburbs for a couple hundred thousand bucks. And even in the really nice areas, you know, it's still within the realm of possibility that a regular person could afford to live. Uh, Toronto, obviously, is becoming more expensive. And another thing with Atlanta is that the loan sizes were within our snack bracket. So, you know, let, let's say loan size is in the five to $100 million range and not 500 million or 700 million, like some of the massive bank projects we see downtown Toronto. So we liked Atlanta for that. I would say New York is a little bit more of what I was just talking about in, in New York downtown, so Manhattan area. If you go a little bit out, uh, you know, more closer to New Jersey and places like that, 
there's probably a little bit more opportunity. But that being said, you know, we would probably start in a market where we can lend at parameters that we're comfortable with and at loan sizes we're comfortable with. But there's no reason over time as the company grows and as the U.S. presence grows, we couldn't start to tackle larger markets. And Steve will yeah. some comments on that too. Yeah, no, I, I, I listen, like it's, it's sexy to go to Manhattan, but when you go there and you see the, the sportiness of some of the deals they're doing, you just like <laughs> would blow your socks off in comparison to what we do here. I mean, the biggest difference from what we see in Toronto versus call it New York is when you're building a condo in Toronto, you need to essentially sell enough units to cover whatever financing you get. So if you want a $70 million construction loan, you have to have at least $70 million of pre-sales in order to qualify for that construction loan. In the US, in Manhattan in particular, they're building $700 million condos with maybe 15 or 20% pre-sales. So the risk is astronomically higher if you look at just that one metric. And the returns they're getting aren't much greater than we're getting. So we're kind of sitting back after our, our tour of New York and saying, why would we go to New York to provide maybe a, a point and a half to two and a half points better return, but take, let's say, 10 times the risk, right? Um, the other thing is that you're, you may be doing a $100 million mes piece, but you're sitting behind $600 million of institutional financing. Like, there's a lot that could go wrong for, for your $100 million to quickly evaporate. How do you source a loan in these areas? So like Atlanta, for example, are you, do you go talk to developers down there or? I have a sales force here in Toronto. We have eight, eight originators. We have a call program. We make, uh, you know, each guy's tasked to make 40 to 50 calls a week. We book meetings. There's, there's a number of different databases and um, lists you can get in terms of, you know, who's doing what and who the key players are. And, you know, it's sort of like grassroots sales 101, pick up the phone, call the developers, book meetings, go and see them, buy them a coffee, tell them, you know, who we are, what we do. If you do enough of that, you'll, you'll start seeing some business. But yeah, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we pick a market and we start from scratch and fly down there. And the other thing too is, you know, you can, you can hire local, right? You'll hire someone hopefully with a track record and we have investor partners as well, I would say that some of our investor partners in Canada also have U.S. operations. So we would, you know, to a certain extent, obviously speak to them, see if they have any recommendations, see if there's opportunities for us to participate in deals with them. And that way, at least, you know, we're going to leverage their expertise, at least at the very beginning and make sure that we're comfortable with the metrics, because compared to Canada, as we know, the U.S. is massive. So every market has a lot more submarkets. Every submarket has its own lending criteria. And, you know, being the new kid on the block, it's easy to get your lunch eaten. So we want to take a very measured approach and make sure that we're not taking too much risk. And Steve's laughing at me, but I mean it. <laughs> Sorry, I just like that analogy, but it's very true. You got to be the new kids on the block get uh, picked, you know, you get pointed out pretty quickly. So you got to, you got to pick good local partners. I think that's the big thing. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons why we've had a hard time, you know, maybe growing as fast as we wanted to go West is every deal that we do. Katie's talked about our base street high yield fund. So that's our Toronto based private internal fund. And they're happy to go to Vancouver, but they want a local partner on every deal we do. So if we do a $10 million deal and seven is from a, a schedule B bank, or a bank and, and we're doing 3 million behind, they're happy to do a million or 2 million or a million and a half, but they want a local partner to do the rest, to be shoulder to shoulder with us. And again, it goes back to my comment about real estate. It's, you know, you want to drive there, you want to kick the dirt, you want to see what's across the street, down the street, around the corner, and really get a sense for, you know, what you're lending on and where and, and with whom. 
How are you managing the portfolio from a first and second mortgage perspective? Um, how much do you have in first versus seconds? And can you tell us a bit about the process with the second mortgage? Sure. So for the mortgage trust right now, we are 87% in first mortgages. Uh, I would say generally the second mortgages that we do, uh, there's basically two two reasons we would do seconds. One of them, which has emerged more recently, is that we've started to do more business with some of the credit unions and other institutions of that nature. And a lot of them, for regulatory and administrative reasons, require that we register as a second mortgage as opposed to participating in the B position with them. So I would say some of those second mortgages are no different in terms of you know loan metrics and risk than they would be if they were the B piece in a first but just the investor that's in first position has asked that we break it out separately. So that's really not changing much other than optically they prefer it that way. Uh, The other reason we would do seconds is we have also uh, some very good clients that we've known for a long time, you know, significant net worths, and they may be doing, you know, large construction projects where one of the big banks, for example, is doing the first mortgage financing, and they're looking for a medium-sized mezzanine or subordinate piece Of course, you know, someone like a CIBC is not going to let us be a B piece in their first mortgage. So we are a true second in that case. But again, the metrics are still within what we would consider conventional. And the return is reasonable given the metrics. And we're very confident in the developer's ability to execute. Historically, though, Cameron Stevens is predominantly a first mortgage lender. So even at 87%, that's on the low side for us. I would say we're normally in the 90s. But I, I don't foresee us going too much below that because we generally do look for first mortgages. Do you, one other uh, quick question, just on the environment. Uh, do you see a lot of because do you see banks kind of tightening their their lending structures and seeing more deal flow your way, especially in the Toronto scenario? Banks have been banks have been tightening their lending parameters for the last twenty years. There were no shops like us, and now there's tons, not tons, but there are a lot. You know, like the the banks banking. Here, I'll, I'll tell you another story about uh, Manhattan. I think on on the island of Manhattan, if you want to call it that, I think there's something like 70 banks. Not surprising. I mean, the the regional bank structure in the U.S. There's so many. Yeah. So, you know, we we have five big banks that are heavily regulated. Our banking system in Canada is extremely extremely conservative. Every day, the regulators and the re, you know the regulations become tighter and tighter. Like Katie can speak to the audit. Uh, that we go through from a, from the trust and, and the mixed perspective. But listen, the banks, especially coming out of COVID, well, maybe coming out of COVID, they may loosen up slightly, but it's not going to become anything even close to what, you know, you'd see in the U.S. or other countries around the world. From that perspective, you know, it's created a real opportunity for firms like us to source other institutional capital. So there's a lot of, you know, like life companies, for example, they want exposure to this world being, the development construction world. They don't want to go out and have a sales force sourcing it themselves, but they're conservative and, and, and our ability to raise um, private money to pair with their money. It, it's given us the opportunity to create a great business and fantastic risk adjusted returns to, to retail investors. What's the current, I mean, the current environment, what are your thoughts on GTA? You've mentioned Canada, like uh, in terms of Alberta and some of the areas, but what are you focusing on and, and what are the opportunities? Listen, our core business, like I mentioned, is in Southern Ontario. I, I always look at, you know, a couple key factors. One, one in particular is immigration. If you look at now, go back pre-COVID, um, I think there was an estimated 170,000 immigrants 
um, slated to move to Toronto in 2020, of which I think they were saying 110 or 100 something like that were going to be ended up in the GTA. So a couple things. Number one, those approved immigrants haven't gone anywhere, right? They, they're still have their bags packed, ready to come. On top of that, there's another X amount, and I don't know the exact stat, but one of our investors was telling me he was sitting down with two of the CEOs of two of the major banks, and it's upwards of 300,000 immigrants. And, you know, predominantly focused at to, to move to, to GTA. So just say in 2021 into 2022, that's 200,000 people. Like that's 100,000 homes that are required in a market that's already undersupplied. And I'll add on to that too, Steve, and say that a lot of people are saying, well, now with COVID, everyone wants to move out to the suburbs and people want to move where they have lots of space. And what's that going to do to the Toronto market and the condo market? And sure, I would say in the short term, definitely, there's obviously rents have been depressed. You can see that it's now a, a renter's market for the first time in a long time. And condo prices have come down. I mean, I wouldn't, I own a condo downtown. I wouldn't put it on the market tomorrow. But do I think that's going to persist long term? No, I think that there's still a lot of demand for Toronto. I think a lot of developers recently have launched new projects that are you know, going to be coming up in the pipeline. So obviously they believe in it. And I would say the long term fundamentals are strong. Like Steve mentioned, there's a lot of immigration. I don't think that the workforce is going to remain permanently remote. Eventually, people, to some extent, are going to want to come back to the office. They're going to want to go to bars and restaurants. And the best place to do all of that is downtown. So I yeah, think like we're, we're bullish on, on cities as, as a whole. Like people are generally social beings, right? Like we like to be in, you know, be with be with other people. And I, and I think that if you look at metropolitans over you know the last five hundred years, it's a good place to put your money. It's a good bet that the, that the city's not going anywhere. So, yeah, absolutely. Are are things have things slowed in the rent from a rental perspective? Yes. Are we being very cautious? Absolutely. Are we Stress testing every single number we look at, 100%. But long term, if you look at the city of Toronto in particular, like I think we live, we're we fortunate to live in one of the best cities in the world. And, and I would bet on this city all, all day long. And I would say the same thing about some of the other, you know, Canadian cities. It's a, it's a great place to live. And I think it's a great place to invest. So we're confident in it long term. But, yeah, we got to get through this. Yeah, well, David was walking around the path the other day, and it's just empty. It's eerie. You know, our office is at Bay and Queen, and you know, I'll walk there every once in a while, and it's it it's shocking to say the least. But no, I agree with you. The long term fundamentals are there, especially on the immigration numbers. People need somewhere to live, right? And people want are, are always trying to you know figure out how we fix the the affordability problem. If you look at Toronto, there's there's a real supply issue. It's not a demand issue. It continues. To not be a demand issue, and the biggest challenge that we have, if you if you look at city planning and you talk to any developer, when I started in this business ten years ago, you could buy a site on January first, and in all likelihood by the following January, you could be approved to build your building. Now you're looking at a two to three year wait to get your approvals, and every single site that's gone that goes toward or goes into first into city planning for you know increased density. Is being challenged by the neighbors, it's being challenged by the local councillors, and they're basically saying, you know, we don't want density. But in the next breath, they're saying it's too expensive to live here. It's, it's like a fundamental problem where no one wants towers and no one wants density, but everybody wants affordability. Well, how do those two things coexist? And then you add on heritage issues to that, and then you've just got a real, a real problem because there's all that 
I would say, uneven application of heritage principles. Some buildings, hate to say it, they might be heritage, but they're certainly not attractive and they don't really add much to the city. But, you know, for whatever reason, they're designated and we can't do much about them. So there are a lot of hurdles. And even in the U.S., actually, one thing that we found that was interesting is in a lot of places, you know, you want to build something, you build it. You get your building permit in three months, whereas here it's three or three or four years. So it, it is a big discrepancy and it eventually will make us not competitive price wise. You know who ends up paying for that ultimately? It, it's the buyer or the renter. Like prices go up because the costs go up and costs on any given development, the government charges are like 30% of, of the total cost between HST development charges, parkland dedication, something called Section 37, which is just like an arbitrary tax that the government decided to charge developers. You know, and you know who pays for all of it. it it's the it's the consumer. One, one quick question about a development that was a long time in the works and, and canceled. What What's your thoughts about the sidewalk slab project down on the waterfront and if we'll see more proposals like that in the future? So I actually interviewed on my podcast, we had um, Bob Lebleski from Diamond Corp, who was one of the partners. So Diamond Corp was partnered with uh, Waterfront Toronto. And then actually last, on Monday, we interviewed um, Andrew Delzato from Tridel, and they have a bunch of development down on the water just beside that. It's a good question. It's a great question. It's a loaded question because I think the idea and the concept was the intentions were right. I think building an actual smart city is more complicated than building houses, like forward thinking houses. And Andrew Delzato had a good example. She said, you know, think about your cell phone. Like you get a new cell phone or a new iPad or a new laptop, like every year and a half or every two and a half years, depending who you are. And you want to build a city based on like technology no one's used before. And if you look at houses, there are condo, condo, you know, it should last 50 years or 100 years. So like, how are you building all this, like putting all the smart technology, monitoring everybody, everything they do, every breath they take, every word they say, like, we weren't, maybe we weren't ready for it. And I don't think the sidewalk labs goals were aligned with the city's goals and maybe ultimately the consumer's goal. So I think it was slightly flawed. I mean, I still think it's a good idea. I think it's sad. I think it's, I hope that space is used properly. Like I really do hope um, they figure it out, but yeah, it's never, it's never good to see a failed project. Uh, at any level, any size, especially one, you know, that popular. What, what's your podcast called? I'd like to listen to that. It's called uh, Toronto Under Construction. I just listened to the last episode where you interviewed Jeff Hall. They encourage people to to listen. It was it was a great discussion. He's he's such a down to earth guy. He's he's very honest. He's open. He's willing to kind of like tell it as it is, but. I think there's like this misconception of developers and that's sort of why I wanted to do the podcast. Everyone thinks that they're just like these super rich assholes who drive Ferraris at cash checks and couldn't be further from the truth. It's like a really hard business. There's, there's a ton of red tape. It's very risky, super capital intensive. And people are just trying to, you know, do the right. And a lot of them really do believe in the city and want to do amazing. Like Jeff Hall's got some amazing projects on like small stuff on Ossington, cool stuff in Liberty Village. It's got stuff down in Leslieville, stuff in uh, King and Queen West. It's like great stuff that's making the city like a better place to live. And he's just like a genuine guy, right? He did a fantastic job with Ossington. I live right around the corner and I frequent that street often. And it is really nice what he did. It's made the street just 
that much more attractive. Yeah, that's a great point you bring up. A lot of good that developers do in terms of passion for the city and and passion for the growth of the city because we're becoming and and continually marching towards being a world class city. I'm gonna I'm gonna end the conversation here. Uh, thank you both for joining. Uh, it was an excellent discussion. As mentioned before, check out Toronto Under Construction podcast as well. And in terms of the fund, it is available through Neo and and talk to your advisor. You can purchase it. Uh, just make sure that it fits within your allocation. But it it's available. Thank you too, and and uh, have a wonderful day. Appreciate you having us on and David as well. Thank you so much, guys. And that concludes the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For more information about Cameron Stevens, you can visit their website at CameronStevens.com or feel free to check out their podcast, Toronto Under Construction. Highly recommend. And if you'd like more information of how to integrate Cameron Stevens into your portfolios, uh, please contact David Winnell or myself, Philip Marion. Uh, You can reach us at fostergroup.ca, check out the website and go to our bios. Thank you. So that's the show. Thanks everyone for listening. Today's episode of Invest the Money has been brought to you by the fine people here at Foster & Associates, where innovation and independence drive great client outcomes. Check us out at www.fostergroup.ca. If you want to reach out to me, the host, David Winnell, you can reach me at D-W-I-N-N-E-L-L at fostergroup.ca or Phil Marion is P-M-A-R-I-O-N at fostergroup.ca.